episode 53, Tis the Season, Ality. And welcome back for another edition of the Syzygy Podcast. My name's Chris Stewart, sitting opposite me at the table in her office, Dr. Emily Brunsden. Hello, hello. So we had a really nice time last week, didn't we? It Up was so Thursk fun. Yeah. At the Podcast Social Club. If you're joining us for the very first time because you were at the Podcast Social Club and you came along to see us up there in Thursk, then hello. Welcome. Hello. Nice to have you on board. And if you didn't manage to make it along to the lovely city of Thursk, is it a city? Does it have a... Okay, here in the UK... It's a market town, right? It is. Well, it's definitely a market town because it has a very large market square. Um, but I do know that in this country, things like, you know, conurbations of, of, of buildings have different statuses depending on whether or not they have large buildings with steeples on top that have people in funny hats inside. Like if you've got, if you've got a cathedral, then you're a city or something. Isn't it based around number of pubs as well? Well, probably, but I mean that would make York the centre of the universe. Then because York <laughs> has a pub on every corner. Um, but I, I don't know. Anyway, Thursk, thank you so much for coming along the podcast social club. We had such a great time, um, and the fact that when we asked, "Is there anyone in the room who's listened to us before?" and not a single hand went up, to me that just means we've got a lot of potential to reach a bunch of new people. So welcome on board. It was yes. great fun. Yeah, and thank you all for voting for me as well. That was great. yeah. I I have gotten over the fact that it's. It's now 2-0 to Emily in the uh, the great Syzygy Space Off stakes. Look, I'm all I'm saying is just wait till next year, right? I was robbed. And <laughs> next time, next time we do a GSSO, uh, I'm coming in hard. I'm taking no prisoners, right? Gloves are off next time. Well, okay? You better start your training now, Chris. Cause... Mate, I'm on it. I am, <laughs> I am all over the next one. You just wait and see. Anyway, that's enough of that. Listen, we've got a very special episode today because we were contacted a little while ago by one of our brand new Patreons. I think we gave him a shout out a couple of episodes ago, actually. Keith Mazzullo, who, uh, who got in touch with us and said, look, I uh, love what you do, which was really nice. Thank you very much, Keith. But also said, I'd be really fascinated to hear a little bit more about this thing that I've just been reading about in the research, very recent research paper, which was all about how could we detect whether or not a planet around a different star, an exoplanet, whether or not it, it could have life on it. And there are a number of different ways that you could do this. But this was a really interesting one. This was all about could you detect seasons on that planet? Could you find a signature of seasonality? You know, summer, winter, autumn, spring, or whatever they might call them on that particular place. <laughs> Could we detect that? And that's a really interesting idea. And Emily, you went and had a look into this. It is an interesting idea, isn't it? It is very interesting. Yeah. So the topic of biosignatures generally, so biosignatures are the things that we can detect that would tell us that there's life on a particular planet, right. whether it's an exoplanet, one of the moons in our solar system, or even Mars, for right. example. And generally, that's, that's when you say biosignatures, you're talking about what, chemistry? Well, a thing, something that is going to tell you undoubtedly that there is life. But what, like, what's the range of possible things? I mean, yes, okay, I guess you could see, um, you know, if you look hard enough, you, you, could, you could see cars driving around and, and, you know, vapor trails across the sky from the planes and things. But we're not talking about that. Are we talking about detecting um, chemical signals? Are we talking about detecting, you know, possible... Um, 
like other kinds of signals? What's the, what's the range of possible things that we could see? Yeah, so there's about 10 different things that we look for, right? Yeah. Well, 10 different types of biosignatures, if you like. Now, if we dial this back a little bit and go into kind of what conditions we are really looking for when we're looking for, say, life, yeah. we're, we're basing most of this knowledge on the life that we have here on Earth, right? So, we, And there's three kind of core principles that we believe that any life that at least is easy, going to be easy to find is going to require. So the first one is some kind of um, chemical or thermodynamic disequilibrium. So what that means is something's out of balance. Right. And you need something to be out of balance because otherwise you can't, that most of the detection methods require something to be a little bit out of balance. And the notion of something being out of balance, why, why would something out of balance be a signature for potentially for life? So one example is for the Earth. Mm-hmm. We have lots of methane in our atmosphere. Now methane, um, we also have lots of oxygen. So methane reacts very readily with oxygen to form carbon dioxide okay. and water. Sure. So if you're going to have lots of methane in its natural form, if you like, then there must be some source that's providing that methane. Something's got to be making that. Otherwise, it would have all changed to these other oxidation products. Right. So we know that there are things on Earth that produce methane, So and the most efficient source of methane is life. Okay, so we're looking for signatures of stuff happening on the planet that, as you say, is is out of balance. It's out yep. of whack. And the implication of that is that something's causing that and that something may well be life. Yeah. Okay. So number one is disequilibrium. Yep. Number two is liquid water. Mm-hmm. So we don't understand any form of life on Earth that doesn't have some kind of process that involves liquid water at some point. Okay. So it's not it's not the smoking gun of life, but it's a really, really good indicator based on what we know of all the life we've found in the universe so far, which yep. is us. And the third one is an energy source. Uh-huh. So that's for the Earth. The majority of our life uses the sun directly as an energy of source, whether through photosynthesis for plants or eating things mm-hmm. that photosynthesized for other things. Yeah, you follow it down far enough and it's all basically the sun. Except aren't there some life forms on Earth that are getting their energy from from underground? Yeah, so there are a few that, um, for example, live around these fumaroles, these underground hydrothermal vents. Uh, they're extracting energy from the the geothermal um, energy of the Earth. Which There's is also, really interesting, isn't it? Because it's, it's, really cool, it's yeah. a really nice example of, yeah, but it doesn't have to be from the sun. No. It can just be energy and it'll work. Exactly. Um, there's also some examples of um, types of life that live off chemical reactions underground. Oh, right. So they can basically uh, use chemical processes to produce energy. Yeah. So you need, but you need an energy source. Yeah. Um, and this is why we haven't given up on places in the outer solar system like the mm. moons of Jupiter or Saturn because they can have energy sources that are different to the ones on Earth. Yeah, there are a couple of moons, aren't there? You, you can remind me what they are, which are quite active. Quite volcanic and, and sort of energetic. Yeah. So our three favourite ones are Titan around Saturn, um, and that's probably got some geothermal um, processes. It's definitely got a lot of atmosphere and things going on. Uh, we also quite like Enceladus and uh, Europa. So Enceladus is around Saturn, Europa is around Jupiter, but they're quite similar actually themselves, both big icy balls, but because of gravitational tugs with their planet, they are probably got very large liquid water oceans underneath those icy caps. And a very long way away from the sun. So, you know, if it did turn out that there was life on any of those, then that life is getting its energy from from the moon, not from this very distant, tiny exactly, sun yeah. in the sky. 
I mean, we get a lot of confidence, or maybe not confidence, a lot of hope from the fact that we do find, like pretty much anywhere where you could find life on Earth, you do. And the fact that you do find these chemical, you know, the ones who are getting the energy from the chemical reactions, the, one who are getting, the ones who are getting the energy from the, the under, undersea vents, gives us a lot of hope. What we don't know is whether or not all of those different kinds of life forms are actually all coming from one original event, which, which was, you know, the origins of life on Earth, in which case they've all just spread off and, and invaded any niche that they could find. And without that event, there wouldn't be any. Or is it that you just get life where there's possibility for it? And interesting, very interesting question. Yeah. Don't have time to get into that today. Moving on. So the 10 types of biosignatures we have, I've yep. sort of grouped them into four broad categories. There's kind of, um, we'll, we'll start with the kind of the least likely, shall okay. we? So the nest has only got one type in it, which is uh, technology. Mm-hmm. So if we saw alien technology, that would be a biosignature. Would be a bit of, that would be the smoking gun, quite literally. If you saw a smoking gun, then yes. well, it's, you're not going to get that naturally. Yeah, you might not it see it for just, very long if those no. aliens are yeah. pointing guns exactly. at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we know, boom. Yeah. Oh, well. So, okay, so that counts, but, you know, that's not really a serious search that we're doing, apart from the programs like SETI, which are more looking at uh, communication yeah. Uh, methods. Yeah, yeah. And just to be so clear, you know, that, that would be quite amazing. That would be definitely yeah. that would be search for a very specific narrow band of life, which is intelligent technological life, of which the vast majority of life in the whole range of life is not. Mm-hmm. So there are other ways. So that's number one. Yeah. Uh, the next group out of four I've got is um, these microscopic or macroscopic physical structures. Okay. So these are kind of things that have been made by life that we have actually physically found. So an example would be a fossil. Right. Okay. Yeah. So we're not talking buildings and cars and planes. We're talking, no, no, no. This is a life form that we found encrusted in a rock. Yeah. And there's there's other types, but basically, can we physically find something? Yeah. So that would happen, for example, if Curiosity, the rover on Mars, found something physical to suggest that life was there. Wasn't there... Wasn't there a number of years ago rock samples found on on Mars or was it on the moon? I don't remember. Which had tiny little traces in them that that looked like they could have been the burrowings from minuscule bacteria or something uh, like there that. Was, there was a meteorite that we have found on Earth That's that we right. split open. Yeah. Um, it was a meteorite from Mars, if I recall. Mm. And it looked, yeah, it looked like you had these kind of fossilized bacteria kind of structures. Um, that hit the news in a big way at the time. Yeah. Uh, but since then, there's been lots of explanations that are non-biological mm. for mm. these it got Particular. very, very noisy in the headlines and then went away, which is always a sign that, well, or not. Yeah. You know, it might not be that. In fact, there's a lot of reasons why it probably yeah. isn't. So probably that. not that one. Yeah. 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 But that kind okay. of thing, if yeah. you can find fossils, if you can find, you know, definitive traces of, well, that was made by something alive or yeah. was itself something alive Indeed. at some point. Yeah. Okay, so there's those, and we're really only going to find those from either things that have come to Earth or us going out and getting them, which is limited to the yeah. very nearby. Yeah, um, Fair, fairly limited system. range of sources there. 
So the big one, the big category that has quite a few different ones is um, probably more what you think of when you think of biosignatures. So these are things that we could see on an exoplanet, for example, different types of um, reactions. Uh, You have um, isotopes, so particular ratios of different types of the same chemical that could only occur with life. Um, And methane is an example. There is uh, different ways you can create methane. Biological sources create methane in a slightly different way to geological processes. Right. Um, chemicals themselves, so can you see the methane, for example, um, organic molecules, um, minerals, um, and atmospheric gases, and atmospheric uh, pigments. So this would be is the color, overall color of your exoplanet, kind of bluey green, which might suggest you've got a biosphere or something right. like that. I guess there are limited ways of getting different colors on a planet, and uh, and certainly if you look at the Earth, then we know that its bluey greenness is coming from the water and the landscape. And green doesn't come up a hell of a lot in rocky worlds. Like, you know, you don't see a lot of green on Mars, for example. You don't see a lot of green on Venus. see a lot of green on Earth for a very important reason. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So those are the kind of the group ones that we're generally looking for when we talk about um, atmospheric biosignatures and okay. in exoplanets. Uh, and then there's this kind of fourth category, which is what we're going to talk about today, which is this kind of just temporal variability. So most of those other um, signatures, you measure you measure one thing and you've got it, right? You measure that there's an alien spacecraft there or you measure that you've got a particular isotope ratio of methane, then that's your measurement and yep. you know that there's life. Yeah, and it doesn't um, matter if you do that today or in a week or in a month. You've made that measurement. Yeah. So temporal variability means that something's going to change over time that suggests there's a cyclic biological process that's happening. Uh, and one example that well, the example we're looking at today is seasons. Now, seasons themselves, of course, not caused by uh, no. life. No, we're, there aren't seasons because we're here. That doesn't work that way. No, seasons come from some other astronomical. Well, indeed, thing. yeah. So they come from the Earth's tilt. So the Earth and its orbit around the sun is tilted over by twenty-three and a half degrees. Mm-hmm. And that means that you've got one hemisphere that's getting proportionally more sunlight at any one time. So that's getting summer. And then as the Earth orbits around the sun, the other hemisphere gets, again, proportionally more sunlight. And not due to the to the idea that at some times of the year the Earth is closer to the sun than, than at others, which is a common misconception. No, we're actually coming into nearly the point where the Earth is closest to the sun, which is around January time. So for the Northern Hemisphere people, it's very, very clear that uh, we don't have summer in January because we're closest to the sun then. Yeah, and it's it's, it's pretty cold outside It's today. pretty cold, so yeah. That's, that's not that. So it's no. due to the, the tilt of the Earth. That's where the seasons come from. Okay. But how does that then turn into a biological signature, right? That's, a, that's an astronomical fact about the Earth. It has seasons. Yeah. So what the seasons do is they change um, a parameter called insulation. Mm-hmm. And insulation is just a fancy way of saying amount of sunlight yeah, that's not, hitting a place. Not insulation, but insolation. Yeah, sol. sol as in sun. Indeed. So in, coming in, hitting, bouncing off, how much sunlight is falling on the planet. Yeah. So you could yeah. even think about how many photons are you getting to hit a particular square meter. Right, yes. And so if you're tilted, as we are in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment, you're tilted, which means the sun's coming in at a lower angle, which is why the sun's lower in the sky all the time, which means any particular bit of land is only getting glancing rays. You're getting much less sunlight per square foot. Mm-hmm. That's the insulation. Yeah. Whereas down in the Southern Hemisphere, very hot and sunny because the sun's coming directly down on top of you and you're getting lots of sunlight per square meter. 
Yep. Yep. So insulation changes over the course of a year, and it turns out that life responds to that. Yes. Well, we do know that in don't a we? very because, obvious way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we can look outside right now and see trees that are very, very bare because it's coming into the middle of winter, and they've you know lost all their chlorophyll, then they've died, the leaves have died off, and so the whole surface of the planet's kind of changed color a little bit. So if you were looking at a distant planet and it changed its its signature whatever you're looking at on a seasonal basis you know this time of year it's like this and then six of its months later it's like this then that suggests something's reacting to those seasons right? yeah everything's going to have seasons of some kind it's got a little bit of tilt but the reaction to that the changes due to that are potentially biological. Exactly. Hmm. So there's two kind of ways we can look at this. We can look at actually overall surface color, if you like, or at least you got to remember this is the surface that's pointing towards us. Yeah. So we'd have to measure this at times when you've got this kind of summer um, in quotation marks, um, hemisphere pointed towards you from this exoplanet and measure at times when the winter hemisphere is pointed towards you. And you should, we'll see a color difference based on the different, well, you would on the Earth, let's say, based on the fact that you've got lots of green life in the summer, much, much less in the winter. But you can also do this with um, changes in other biosignatures as well and with a seasonal variation. So you can do this with chemicals in the atmosphere. Right. And these are based on real measurements on the, on the Earth that do change. If we measure the um, measurements of carbon dioxide and methane over time, then we do see a seasonal variation whereby when you have lots of photosynthesis, then you're producing um, lot, much, much less carbon dioxide because you've got you know, that opposite reaction happening. Because that's, that's what the chlorophyll does. Yeah. It takes the carbon dioxide and makes oxygen. Yeah. And so when you've got lots of green things, then you're turning lots of this into lots of that. And if you don't have as much green stuff, then much less of that reaction is going on. You'd see a different signature of that in the atmosphere. Exactly. That's clever. Yeah. And methane has a similar cycle. Yeah. So when we've made, been able to make these measurements based here on Earth by looking at the seasonal variation of particular field stations with their measurements of carbon dioxide and methane. Cool. So this is hypothetical at this at this point? Yeah, so coming to the paper, it's a really nice paper. Yeah, we should probably I, talk about who's, I, who are we talking about? Yeah, so this is Olsen et al, um, who looked at um, basically, it's kind of like a mixture of a thought experiment and a feasibility case study. Mm-hmm. Um, Where have they published this? So this came in May 2018 and mm-hmm. as Astronomical Journal Letters. Um, and it's it's different to the normal kind of papers that I read. I'll, so? I'll be honest. So normally when I'm reading papers in my area, I'm looking at either there's a new the- uh, theoretical technique that's been developed or um, and there's lots of maths and lovely equations yep. or there's a new set of data that's come from a telescope and that they're trying to explain you know things along these lines or there's a new physics that they're trying to say well maybe this type of physics is happening in this um, environment this paper is a bit more um it's kind of speculative but not in a non-scientific way mm. so it's speculative about could we see these things but it then tries to qualitatively make that judgment using real data. Right. So, for example, there's a lot of um, data on these cycles from the Earth and sort of looking at, well, what are, what are the actual changes based on life on Earth? Are they detectable within our current limits of detectability? That kind of thing. So there's quite a lot of astro um, content in there as well, looking at things like orbits, looking at um, axial tilts of planets. But there's also quite a lot of biology in there as well, looking at 
what sort of chemical species. So, that, for example, they take three chemical species and say uh, which would be the best um, right. to, to, to do this kind of analysis for. And the, the conclusion comes to oxygen is probably right. the best one to look for. So, ba- Based on abundance and, and relevance to how that will change with the seasons and with life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And there's quite, you know, it's very honest. It sort of talks a lot about um, what understanding is missing um, from these things. So, for example, if you think about we're doing some spectroscopy to figure out what chemical elements are present, then, you know, there's a lot of things you've got to consider. It's not just, oh, there's oxygen there. That's that's great. But um, you've got to think about the impact that the star has what type of star um, this particular planet goes around would would change it what the actual um, construction of the planet's like like what is the planet made of basically yeah. to begin yeah. with because that then impacts the geology of the planet and indeed what the biology is because most of the assumptions that we're making are based on um, earth and yeah. is there i mean how much of the speculation is based on earth now i mean earth is in a very strange period in its evolution in you know the evolution of life on earth we're in a pretty weird and and you know non-normal period right now and that the earth is covered with these strange bipedal hairless apes who are doing all sorts of crazy stuff and that's not normal for earth we're quite abnormal for life on earth right now you wouldn't want to base all your decisions on well let's go and look for something that looks like earth 2019 no, and indeed what you want to do is maximise your chances. So if you think of Earth and the time that life's been on Earth, mm. then for the vast majority of that time it's been very microbial or gloopy yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. Um, I can tell I'm not a biologist at this point. <laughs> no, those are actual terms. Yeah. That, that works. Um, so no, it is, uh, the paper acknowledges that. So they do look at the early atmosphere of the Earth um, and they do also talk about maybe you couldn't really detect the oxygen change from life until something like two million years into the development of life on a planet. So, right. you know, there's the, kind of that um, acknowledgement that whilst we're looking for something that's like Earth, it might not be at the same stage. But then again, you know, life has been on Earth for, what, a couple of billion years, I think, is the estimate. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, having to wait a little while is not too bad because there's still quite a long span of life on Earth um, that you could you could potentially go for. But I guess what you're saying is it's important to look back to what is more representative of the history of life on Earth, which is not humans. It's not dinosaurs. It's goop and bacteria and, you know, large amounts of water swarming with very small things. Yeah, and we've had photosynthesis happening on the Earth for a very, very long time. So that seems like a good place to kind of start. Yeah, so um, so it does talk a lot about this and it talks about other challenges like – what if the obliquity of the um, orbit is quite different? So, obliquity. So this is the angle that we're seeing it at. Oh, I see. Right. Yep. Not the angle that it's going around, but the angle we see it. Yeah. Yep. Well, actually, the, the the eccentricity, which is how circular the orbit is, or if it's an oval shape, or if it's a crazy kind of comet. Like, right, yeah. Does um, it swing close to the star and then go really far away? That would really change things mess quite things significantly. Yeah. Um, and there's quite a lot of talk about different distributions of continents. So if you had all the continents in the northern hemisphere, for example, would that change your measurements to if there were all right. the continents were in the southern hemisphere? Because most of the photosynthesis um, is assumed to happen on the continents. So I mean, right they, they're even going so far as to say, let's assume we have continents. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's assume we have. I mean, if we're talking about 
you know, let's look for watery places, then, you know, you can you can probably make some assumptions. But is I don't know. I mean, is, is that a thing? Continents, I guess, are a normal thing on a on a planet thing. You know, the, the crust well, is made up of bits that shift around. I don't know. Well, we've only really got one example of them, but... But I yeah. mean, do do other planets like I know I know that we've got continents separated by oceans, but actually, what you're talking about is large bits of crust fitting together like the bones of our skull, yeah, but sliding around each other and sliding under each other. Do we see that elsewhere? So Venus has had a bit, yeah. Um, most other planets don't have huge amounts of geological activity in, in a solar system purely because they're too small, so they've kind of cooled down enough that the um, any liquid. Uh, magma, for example, is very, very deep. Right, so of course, because yeah, our anymore. continental movement is fueled by all the stuff that's going down under the surface. And if the whole planet cools down, then that fuses together, like the bones of the skull. Yeah. You know, when a baby's born, the bo- those bones are still all moving around, and there's bloody great holes in them. Turns out, um, but as the as a as a kid gets older, those bones fuse together, and that's what's happened on Mars. Yeah. yeah, well, Mars probably didn't even have time to build up a really right. continent. It, it cooled right. very quickly. Um, Venus has um, okay. got some geothermal sort of continent style stuff, but that's about it, really. Um, yeah, so, I mean, the assumption's just, sure. is it an Earth-like thing? So, well, and maybe that's an okay assumption, because if you're going to assume, well, you're going to look out and see thousands of exoplanets, maybe you just pick the ones that's most like Earth and hope that the... Well, it makes Conditions sense. Are similar. It makes sense, right? You 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 look where the light is. You know, you, you go and see. And if you, as you say, there are, there are thousands of exoplanets now. I don't know how many of those who would fit into the category of well, let's look at those. It might be hundreds. It might be two. I don't know. But that's presumably where you start. You look where it would make the most sense. Yeah. So coming back to biosignatures and where this kind of fits in, yep. biosignatures turn out to be a lot harder than I kind of naively thought they were and I've might have said this before but I my I'm not a very um, prolific chemist or biologist but I sort of thought oh you know if you get a bit of methane then you know you can say that there's life there and that's easy, easy yeah right? yeah turns out it's actually not easy mm. at all it's really tricky um, and there's huge problems with um, any kind of thing any biosignature where there are false positives so these are things that mimic the biosignature but are actually not biological so you mean you you find evidence for say methane, and it's there, but that doesn't mean it's biological. Is that exactly. What you mean? Yeah. yeah. So um, it means it's come from an abiotic process, like right. geothermal process, for example. Because it turns out that chemistry and atmospheres and planets are complicated. Yeah. I mean, we talked about all the way back in episode nine about Mars having seasonal variants in some methane. That's right. We did. Yes. Um, that Curiosity measured and. These are highly controversial measurements. I went back and had a look at kind of where that research is sitting today. And it's it's all kind of up in the air. Nobody really knows what's causing that. Um, there's not a really strong argument that it's biological. Um, in fact, methane on Mars is a very difficult thing to characterize altogether. It seems to come and go. It seems to be below the limits of detectability a lot of the time. Um, I guess there's no so- real reason why. I mean, if a planet like Mars does have some seasonality, look, Chemical reactions are heat and potentially even just light-based. You know, things things well, exactly, could increase yeah. just simply because there is a season. Exactly. Does so it mean that there's something lifey there? There's a lot of false positives, yeah. really. Um, yeah. But also with a lot of um, biosignatures, well, all of them, they still have false negatives as well. So hang on, what's a false negative? That you don't see 
Is that where you don't see the methane? But it is there. What, tell me. Yeah, so misleading non-detection. Right. Okay. So if you think, oh, we didn't see this uh, particular thing, say methane on this particular planet, therefore there's no life there. Well, actually, maybe there's another process that's destroying the methane that's being produced by life. Ah, I see. Yeah. And so making that judgment may be premature. Right, right. So just, I guess, not putting all your eggs in, in one particular astronomical basket, um, looking for multiple things. Because yeah. you just never know how complicated the situation is on the planet you're looking at. So having the most diverse range of biosignatures that we can put together that are uh, readily able to be deployed, if you like, um, for a particular exoplanet, you'd want to have confirmation from two or three different methods, ideally, to be able to say, yes, yes, all of these things are saying there's life and they're all agreeing. Yeah. I mean, Mars, as you say, classic example that, well, we've seen, we think, this seasonal variation in this in this one thing. So therefore, life on Mars? No, <laughs> no not <laughs> no, that simple. Not that and so, and that's Mars. Like that's yeah. just the next one out. If you're looking at another planet around a completely different star, a very long way away, then extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Indeed, you've got to get your five sigmas, which is a little bit yes. of an in joke. Yes, yes. But uh, basically, got to be very, very. Very, very, very sure. Yeah, very yeah. confident, basically, that yeah. you're measuring what you think you're measuring. So that's why so I think this research fits into the biosignature um, puzzle in that way. It's kind of another tool that we can use um, to potentially say there is or is not life on an exoplanet. I did want to mention a few of the actual real difficulties that started to get my hopes down, if okay. you like, by the end of so this what, article. So you, you went into this paper going, fantastic, this is awesome. We, yeah. We'll have this knocked over by next year. No? Yeah, well, it turns out that sometimes it's a bit more difficult than we actually thought. I mean, we thought it was difficult, yeah. but then it turns out to be even more tricky. <laughs> so, I mean, our, our big new biosignature uh, space telescope is the James Webb Space Telescope. James Webb. And uh, and how long has James Webb been up there now? Uh, minus one years. Right. So do you... 2020? I'm still going for a 2020 launch. Oh, really? Hopefully, okay. maybe 2021. Oh, come on, we'll guys. See. Come on. We'll see. We're cheering um, for you. Yeah. So JWST is going to be looking at um, some very basic biosignatures um, in spectroscopy. So it's going to be looking for atmospheres. Uh, and the way that we do that is by looking at transiting exoplanets. So these are ones passing in front of their host star. And some of that light from the host star is filtered through the atmosphere of the planet. Yeah. So we can look at changes that might be caused by the atmosphere right, of that planet. Right. So you're no longer just looking at, hey, there's a planet there because we saw the light from the star dip a little bit. You're now looking really, really carefully at that light and going, yeah, but how did it change? Yeah. What light got absorbed? What got transmitted? So transmission spectroscopy is one of the biggest um, areas where we're kind of dumping research, if you like, into biosignatures. There's also um, reflection spectroscopy, right? which is where you wait for the planet to go just about before it goes um, behind the star and at that point it's reflecting a lot of light back at you from the atmosphere so similarly that light that's being reflected back at you will be changed a little bit by the atmosphere that it's bouncing off great question how do you if you're looking at a planet which is just about to go behind the star how do you see anything at all because you're looking basically at a star which is really really bright so so what, remember we're talking about like integrated light so we're talking about the light of the planet plus star right. all the time we can't yeah. we can't separate for these um close uh, transits the light from the planet and star it's just impossible so we've got a uh, light from um just star alone say when uh, the planet's okay. yep. in front of the star um or it's only got a little bit of atmosphere 
Um, and then we look at planet plus star just before it goes behind. Right. So you've got the, your baseline of that star and then you've got planet plus star and you just subtract one from the other. Yep. What's left? Yeah. So those techniques are, are, are being really well developed. Um, we have used them to, to say things like we have got some exoplanets with hydrogen atmospheres, helium in their atmospheres. So we have and water and, and water vapor. So, yeah. we, so this isn't hypothetical. No, we can do very basic stuff, but we need to up the game quite a lot to be getting to the point of saying that these are um, biotic, right. these um, particular signatures. So the problem with JWST is that it's not actually going to be useful for the seasonal oh. variation stuff. How come? Because you've basically always got the same view of the planet. How do you mean? So if you think about seasons, then if you think about um, the emission spectroscopy. Well, yeah. The tra- yeah. So when, it, when it's transiting, it's always got the same season pointing towards you. Yeah. So it's actually. So you're not seeing seasons. You're just seeing the same thing every year. Over and over again. Hey, it's yeah. summer again. Oh, look, it's summer again. So that's not super useful. No. So what we do really need is these um, to do imaging for these uh, to get this uh, seasonal variation. So we need very, very large aperture space telescopes. Such as? Well, mostly hypothetical. Right. Okay. <laughs> so when you say we need, what you're saying is, no, we, we need these. Yeah, please build me some. <laughs> um, there's a couple of um, projects being developed, but they're very, very early stages. And I didn't really want to go into the details because they're you know the chances of them being sure, funded let's, let's not get down the line. Yeah. When you say large aperture, like are you like Hubble, like that? Oh kind of no, aperture, much or? much bigger. Right, so okay. like ten meter. Wow, that sort of scale. What's, so well, hang on, what's Hubble? Uh, Hubble was one point eight. <gasps> okay, yeah. So you're talking really quite large. Yeah, yeah. big, 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 big telescopes. Yeah. Because we can do this in from, space. This from the ground, whereby mm. we've imaged exoplanets by basically sticking in a. Um, a filter that or a blocking um, circle that blocks out the light from the sun, and then you're able to add the star, and then you're able to actually see the exoplanets going around. Problem is, most of these exoplanets are so far away from their host stars during those measurements that they're at least kind of Uranus's distance right. in our solar system. Yeah. Which also means they're going to take an awfully long time to go around their host planet. Yeah, even seeing seasons star. at all is going to take you a while. So it's going to take at least months, probably years, mm. to gather these kinds of measurements. Um, so, And the ones that are shorter than that, these planets on periods of days, are just too close for this um, blocking. You can't just sort of star. stick your thumb in the way, metaphorically, and <laughs> block out the block out the star and just watch the planet going around because they're just too close, they're and that would close. be too clumsy. So, I guess by the end of the paper, you sort of come into the point. Well, yeah, this this would really work, but we don't <laughs> really a, have on a quite a long time scale a with a lot of funding it. and building just the right kind of very large aperture telescopes in space. Yeah. Okay. Good. Right. Crack um, on. Right. Well, I don't know. Does that give us hope? It's. I mean, it's really interesting, Emily. I love the idea that, that there's this, I don't know, this very speculative side of what has become an incredibly specific and detailed part of, of modern astronomy, which is, hey, look, there's exoplanets. No, look, there's lots and lots of exoplanets. Let's measure the hell out of them. And then this paper comes along and says, well, look, here's a thing that we could do, but it's going to be really, really hard. I feel like what you're describing is sort of 10 years, like decade plus 
of potential here that is something that we could be looking at somewhat into the future, but it's not at all impossible. Yeah, but you think back to astronomers in the 50s and 60s, they would have said exactly the same things about even detecting exoplanets. Yeah. They would yeah. have said, yeah, it's possible to do transits. Yeah, it's possible to do radial velocities of uh, moving stars. Yeah. But we'll never, you know, that's so far beyond the technological limits of the time yeah. before we had silicon detectors even. You we'll know. never asterisk get there. And that asterisk gets you to, well, eventually there'll be a step change in the technology. Like like gravitational waves. Um, you know, for 100 years it was never going to happen. You are off your tree if you think that we're going to be able to measure that. And then suddenly we can. And we've got a whole new kind of astronomy because the technology finally got there and suddenly we can do it. Well, you know, here we are. We can't do it now, but 10 years, who knows? Yeah, and I think astronomy is more ambitious than it's ever been before. When you look at some of the enormous global projects that we're building, we're building... um, telescope arrays that expand the, basically the entire southern hemisphere with the SKA, the square kilometre array and radio dishes. We're building telescopes, we've you know, got real telescopes being built that are going to be between 10 and 20 metres in diameter. We're building lasers in space to measure gravitational waves. Lasers and, in space. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. Yeah. You know, this is, so it's, uh, you know, it's watch this space, basically. Yeah. It's coming down the track and this paper is saying look, here's a really good Thing to think about while you're waiting for the big space laser telescopes. That'd yeah. be awesome. Well, let's let's wrap this one up now. We are going to have to get out of here. So, if like Keith, our wonderful patron, if you wanted to get in touch with us and send us a question, an idea, here's something that I've heard about on the news, here's a paper that I've just read, how could people get in touch with us, Emily? What would they do? So, they can tweet us if they've got a short enough paper. Okay, yeah. <laughs> At SyzygyPod, S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y pod. Uh, head us up on Facebook. Yep. yep. Uh, again, SyzygyPod. Yep. We've got yep. a beautiful website. I do love the website. Syzygy.fm. Yeah. Every time I go, it just makes my heart go, oh, oh that's very awesome. pretty. Yeah. Really and there's cute. a contact form on there, so you can just fill that one in and send it our way. We're on Instagram. We're on the Instas. We do. Uh, I kind of feel like we need to up our game on Insta, actually. Need to get a few more pictures out there. Yeah. If only astronomy had some nice images. I don't know. Going to have to do some homework. And like Keith, if you wanted to support the show, there's a number of different ways that you could do that. First of all, you could just tell your friends and family, and we would love you to do that because there's so many people. As we found out in Thursk last week, there's so many people who have no idea we even exist and yet go, astronomy, awesome, tell me more about that. So go and tell everyone you know. Spread the word. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you find your favourite podcast. Give us a review. Give us some stars. Help us float up through the noise. Or if you want to go that extra step go to patreon.com slash syzygypod go and find us there and sign up to become one of our wonderful absolutely fabulous patrons like keith who help to keep the lights on here at syzygy central help us to do what we do and help us to build this thing into the great astronomy podcast that we know it can be so if you do that we'll be forever thankful and you can send us a send us a little note like keith did and say hey here's an idea have you thought about talking about this we can have a bit of a chat about it and turn it into an entire show. You never know. Otherwise, we're going to have to wrap it up from there, I think. So, Emily, we'll be back in about a week or so. I'm watching the, the board behind you fill up with lots of different ideas. We're not going to run out of stuff. It to feels talk about, like it's publishing season at the moment. I mean, there's yeah. just stuff coming out every day. It's there really was, exciting. There was a bit of a pause there after summer when everyone went, oh, okay, what are we doing? And then suddenly there's just astronomy stuff everywhere. So we'll be back in about a week or so with another episode of your favourite astronomy podcast. Until then, see you later. See you later. Bye, everybody. Thank you.